Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. State of the Stimulus, Jay Powell and Steven Mnuchin on Capitol Hill testifying today. Who pays? President Trump threatens to permanently pull funding and put to the test sampling for coronavirus in your own home. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Tuesday. Great to be with you for another show focused on stimulus and on science. Wall Street was temporarily blinded by science yesterday on hopes of a future vaccine, we all hope. And we've got Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin on Capitol Hill today discussing their stimulus efforts so far. On Monday, well, we had the best rally for the major averages in weeks as hopes of a return to normal life one day lifted stocks. There's clearly been incredible progress towards a vaccine in a short amount of time, but there's no easy cure for the economic damage already done and the challenges we face in terms of recovery over the next few months. Futures right now are mixed. We've got a whole host of retail earnings today, including Home Depot, Walmart, huge e-commerce gains for Walmart, as you would expect. But of course, no clarity on the future from either of these players. All the details are coming up shortly, as Jay Powell said over the weekend. And will I reiterate, I think today the recovery will simply take time even if stock market levels don't reflect that, you have to look beneath the surface because the story's there. Winners like Amazon may be up 30% year to date, but then take a look at the S&P energy sector. That's tumbled over, what, 35% since January. The banking sector is down more than 17%. The banking sector, arguably a better reflection of the economic and the consumer risks. And we can expect Jay Powell to reiterate those risks again today. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. We've got a choice of the science or the stimulus. Let's talk about the stimulus because that's going to be poured over on Capitol Hill today. We've got Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Jay that's Powell, right. of course, too, together working very hard. But I think one thinks perhaps the other could do more. Absolutely. You know, I think that's Jay Powell, who's going to talk a little bit about the pain and suffering of American workers who put their lives and livelihoods on pause. And he is going to say, it's in his prepared remarks, that we need to do everything we can to support the solvency of those families. And then you'll have the Treasury Secretary defending parts of this stimulus. You know, this is really going to be the first look at this $2.2 trillion, a huge amount of money. Remember, this was direct stimulus payments. It was small business lending. It was supposed to be state-loaned local lending and, and a federal, uh, federal Reserve lending facility for Main Street that hasn't really gotten off the ground yet. So I think when you look at the PPP, that small biz lending, when you look at the Main Street uh, initiatives here, that, that lending facility, uh, you're going to see some scrutiny from these senators about what has been done and whether it's gotten out the door quickly enough. Got out the door quickly enough. And is it favoring some of the big corporations that still have access to money versus struggling to get it to the smaller businesses that, to your point, have perhaps struggled the most. And the jobs market or the lack of jobs here reflect that. I think that, you know, we can give them a little bit of grace for the people who have put designed all this, because when have we ever put $2 trillion out the door so quickly? I mean, this is just something that has never happened before. But what you're starting to see now is scrutiny over how some of these programs uh, were worded and designed, and also about just the, whether the money is working. For example, state and local governments. Um, you know, 
is there, we're already talking about the need for maybe more for them. They've seen their revenues crater. You've already seen hundreds of thousands of jobs lost on the state and local uh, government uh, level. But some of that money hasn't even gone out the door yet. Some of the lending facilities that have already been designed are not working at maximum capacity yet. So I think you'll have senators really zero in on things like that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Monetary policy works way quicker than fiscal policy. When you're talking about this kind of stimulus and getting cash into people's hands, it just takes time. Yeah. In the interim, as Jay Powell said at the weekend as well, full recovery will likely take a vaccine. There were hopes that we saw in, from investors in the stock market yesterday. But my point here is even a vaccine isn't a cure for the, the damage that's already been done and the months of continued damage while we wait to see what the new normal looks like until we see recovery. I think you're so right. And look, when you get a vaccine, right, that is approved and safe and we know, how quickly can you scale up that vaccine? You know, is that something that goes to first responders first, hospital workers first, and then is something that's rolled out for everybody later? So there's still time. I mean, you can't really rush that. As much as you want to put it on warp speed and it's right to do so, uh, we need to be realistic uh, about that timing. In terms of the damage that's already happened, I mean, the restaurant industry in particular, the retail industry, I think these are going to look different on the, certainly the airline industry are going to look different uh, in the new normal. Um, um, even after after there is a vaccine, I think people are going to be a little more cautious uh, about group setting activities and close quarters activities. That's going to take transformation spending for some of these businesses as they as they redesign how they interact with consumers. All of that is still more investment that has to come you know, down the pipeline here for survival for some of these industries. I think we're in the early innings of this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think Jay Powell was perhaps optimistic when he said recovery by end of uh, 2021, but I hope I'm proved wrong. Christine Romans, I hope thank he's you right, so right. much. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that. Now, a resolution calling for a global investigation into the pandemic response has been adopted at the World Health Assembly. Meanwhile, President Trump is threatening to permanently pull funding from the World Health Organization. In a letter to the WHO Director General, the president said, quote, it is clear the repeated missteps by you and your organization in responding to the pandemic have been extremely costly for the world. Senior Washington correspondent Joe Johns is here. Joe, great to have you with us. I think many nations around the world want an investigation into the handling of this, to the handling of information. But uh, the consideration, the idea that you pull funding from this body at this moment in the middle of a pandemic still jarring. Right. The president made clear in his letter that he thought he was protecting the taxpayers of the United States. But at the end of the day, the question is whether this could, in fact, do more harm than good. This letter the president sent out is scathing in many ways. Uh, it uh, attacks the World Health Organization essentially for the behavior of China for the World Health Organization's uh, fawning deference, if you will, to China in the early days of the pandemic. Also important to say the president himself was fawning and deferential to China in the early days of the coronavirus uh, pandemic as it sort of broke out and began there in Wuhan. Uh, the president's letter also indicates that uh, he uh, expects to pull funding and make it permanent uh, from the World Health Organization in 30 days if certain uh, unspecified substantial changes are not made at the World Health Organization and, and has also suggested 
that the United States might withdraw its membership from the WHO entirely again, uh, perhaps a big problem potentially for the United States, simply because we know that the World Health Organization in all likelihood is going to be involved in the development of effective treatments and or a vaccine possibly in the future. And the United States uh, could find itself on the outside of the organization looking in, which is not necessarily a good place to be. Uh, there are a lot of critics, especially up on Capitol Hill here, who have said this is the wrong time to do this. It's the wrong idea, Julia. Yeah, questions need to be asked, but is uh, pulling money the right response at this moment? Joe, there were a couple of things yesterday that I think were uh, eye-opening, more eye-opening even than usual. There were questions being asked about the firing of a State Department Inspector General that was looking into the behavior of Mike Pompeo. Then the president announced that he's personally taking uh, hydrocoxychloroquine and the nation went wild wondering what on earth was going on. Talk to us about... um, the interplay, let's call it, of these two things. Well, we have enormous distractions, and this is one of the things that happens in Washington, D.C., that inspector general situation, by the way, not the first uh, inspector general to be removed from an office uh, here in Washington, D.C. The president does not like being investigated. He doesn't like having his people investigated. This is just one more sign of that. And then the president moves to announce to the media that he himself is taking hydroxychloroquine, which is uh, an unproven drug that is commonly used for malaria. I've taken it myself for malaria on travel. But he says it's a possible treatment for coronavirus, and the tests simply so far don't bear that out. There is even information that in some cases it creates Heart arrhythmias, a huge problem for a person certainly with any type of heart problems. So uh, it's created quite a stir in Washington. And in fact, though, if this were this business about hydroxychloroquine were to be a distraction from anything, I think the thing this administration would mostly like to distract from is the enormous numbers of deaths in uh, coronavirus Uh, people getting the illness here in the United States. Over 90,000 deaths. It's it's an enormous problem here, the worst in the world. And that is something the administration is having a hard time dealing with, at least right now. Enormous distractions, delicately put. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. All right now to a stockpile of retail news. Walmart stock surging pre-market after panic buying in the United States gave it one of its best quarters in decades. We've also heard from Home Depot, among others. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Um, Walmart, let's focus on that one. Dramatic rise in e-commerce sales, as you would expect. What was interesting to me, though, was 6% fewer transactions, but the average receipt size soared. Yeah, people are shopping last year, but they are spending more when they go. I think you can understand people People don't want to leave the house uh, if they don't need to. But this was a really impressive quarter uh, from Walmart, given the challenges and really vindicates the investments that they've been making in, in e-commerce. This encompasses not just delivery, of course, uh, but, but buy online, pick up in store. And they've been able to sort of leverage that strategy, but also their huge footprint of stores. They're now doing fulfillment from 2,500 stores. They've launched express delivery where people can get something in under two hours. All of this, you know, could give them the edge as they go head to head 
with Amazon. But of course, there were huge challenges. One of them was volatility. They, they just couldn't predict which items were going to be stockpiled from one week to the next. It started, as we know, with, with things like paper products, cleaning products. Then it shifted, they said, uh, into educational supplies, home improvement items, adult bicycles apparently sold out at one point. And interestingly, they saw a little dip in the, in, in the first part of April, but then it picked up a stimulus check started coming in. And they saw a rise in discretionary items, things like toys and apparel picked up in the second half of April. But, but, but Julia, given all of that, given that a lot of this stuff is, is lower value items that did put pressure on their margins, and given the volatility that they expect to see continue, they have withdrawn their guidance for the second quarter. Yeah, lack of clarity for all of these companies. But to your point as well about margins and cost, I mean, they hired, what, 200,000 workers to help deal with the scale up in demand. We know just simply having workers in buildings, in warehouses for these retailers was a challenge for safety. What has it done to their cost levels? It's been a big hit to cost. They, yeah. they incurred more than $900 million in costs related to COVID-19, Julia. About three quarters of that came from bonuses and benefits that were paid to hourly workers through the quarter. So that was a major hit. And they do expect that to continue. They've already announced that they're going to pay another special bonus to hourly workers in the second quarter. That's already about a third of the total cost that we've seen in the first quarter. So the CFO on the call, which, which was live, fairly unusually, for Walmart this morning, he said... Uh, that he, he wouldn't be surprised if they see the same level of cost in the second quarter that they saw in the first. But having said that, he says the company has a strong financial position. They, they have good access to capital markets. They are uh, in a position to weather this, but they simply don't know how it's going to go, how long the stimulus is going to last, how people are going to react when lockdowns lift and all of that, just like every company. Yeah. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that update there. To France now, where the CEO of pharma giant Sanofi is meeting with President Macron over a row over the COVID-19 vaccine that the company's working on. Paul Hudson was summoned by the president for suggesting the United States could get priority access. Melissa Bell joins us on this. Let's be clear, Melissa, the United States paid for initial funding, but there's an awkward mix of business and politics here when you're talking about a vaccine to potentially save lives. The company walked it back. What's the discussion on today? Well, I think uh, you're quite right. They did walk it back, saying that, in fact, they'd been talking about vaccines that would be created in the United States. But I think what is so interesting about this story, Julia, is the hackles that have been raised here in Europe, how sharply, how fast they were raised uh, once that interview got out. Uh, And I think that touches on this sore spot that is that the Europeans have really struggled to gather a coherent response. And in that in that clarification that you mentioned from Sanofi, they clearly say, look, we were able to negotiate this initial funding for the vaccine research with the United States because uh, they had a biomedical authority with which we could do that. Ongoing discussions continue with the French. But you can see that on the European side, they really failed to find the kind of partner they might have found that they did find on the American side. But you can understand hackles being raised here. The Europeans point out that this is a company that's benefited from tens of millions of French tax credits. But then there is, of course, that soft spot. And I think that's going to be what's at the heart of that conversation going on at the Elysee today. Yeah, you make such a great point here for a company that has to initially get money in the beginning to even begin the research. Then you have to try and find a production partner. Is there a reticence to perhaps to go to a, uh, an American partner or a country, a different country, a company in a different country, because you have that 
risk then that there's going to be a battle between governments over who gets what vaccines when. I'm getting so excited my words are not coming out properly, but you understand my, well, my point and my, the challenge here. This is exactly at the heart of what Sanofi is answering back, saying, look, this kind of research takes state funds. They took them where they could. This is an urgency. Look at how keenly the world is waiting for this vaccine. And then a final interesting point in this, Julia, is that the particular vaccine we're talking about, should it be proven to work, won't even be available till the second half of 2021. Yeah, that's why we need a global solution to this and the globe should be working together. Melissa Bell, I have my teeth back in now. Great to have you with us. We'll watch to see what comes of that meeting. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on the first move. Still to come, stay-at-home testing. The U.S. approves the first COVID-19 test that lets you collect your own swab. We speak to the CEO of The Makers, Everlywell, and from the house of Mouse to TikTok, a Disney veteran taking charge of the app that's getting Gen Z through the pandemic. And some others. Stay with us. back to First Move live from New York and it's a moderately slow start for stocks this morning following bumper gains yesterday as we await congressional testimony from Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. It's a mixed picture pre-market for retail too as we were discussing earlier both Walmart and Home Depot withdrawing their 2020 guidance. Walmart clearly the outperformer there. Meanwhile, Moderna shares are lower pre-market after their almost 20% rally yesterday. That's the company, of course, working, one of those companies working on a COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna announcing that it's attempted to raise more than $1 billion in a new stock offering to help fund research. Sticking with science, on to a groundbreaking development on COVID-19 testing. U.S. health authorities have approved the first test kit to allow users to take a swab sample at home and then send it off for testing and diagnosis. It's made by health startup Everlywell. Everlywell works with two labs at the moment, but under the approval, it can expand that network. Joining us now is Julia Cheek, CEO of Everlywell. Julia, fantastic to have you back on the show with us. I remember when we were discussing this right at the heart of the outbreak in New York and the benefits this would would provide. Congratulations on the FDA approval. Now what? Thank you. And thanks for having me back again. Um, We are really thrilled to be able to help in the course of this pandemic and expand for Americans at-home collection testing. And this kit um, will be available for individuals and organizations later this month. Um, So we're working hard to get it commercialized. And then to, of course, as you mentioned, add additional authorized labs through the FDA, um, creating a framework that's really scalable for expanding capacity in this country. When we spoke to you last, it was purely for healthcare workers. One of the key points that I think you're making here is that this is now for anybody. If they want to do an at-home test, they can get one of these kits, they can send back the samples to a lab, and they can find out what's going on. It's that mainstream access now that, that we're looking at. Absolutely. And I think the FDA, since the beginning, has said that they were highly supportive of at-home testing for individuals 
upon making sure that it was safe and accurate for individuals to do so. The test does include an online screening questionnaire and an independent physician network review and approval, as well as diagnosis from that independent physician network. So while it is available broadly, there will be a screening questionnaire that follows CDC guidelines, and there is also treatment and follow-up with a physician, as well as reporting to public agencies. So it is not just the ability to have a kit and have no follow-up from that. And I think that is a really important um, part of the process as well that allows you to not only be tested in a home, but then be able to have next steps as well. This is a, a very specific emergency use authorization that you've been given. The, the regulators have had to tailor it to, to meet your needs and to be able, as we just mentioned, to scale up in terms of diagnosis labs. Just give me a sense of, of how unique this is and what production you can do and diagnosis you can do today and then what the potential capacity is. Absolutely. I think this is a, a very unique and innovative situation and we really appreciate the close partnership and guidance from the FDA because Everlywell is a digital health company that provides individuals with access to high quality lab testing, but we ourselves are not a laboratory and we are also not a medical provider. And so when you think about the regulatory pathways for COVID-19 testing under the emergency use authorization framework, it didn't necessarily incorporate a company like ours. And we're really appreciative of the innovative approach to have an umbrella for a collection kit that can then be used with multiple authorized labs. But it is specific to labs that are authorized for the Everly Well at-home collection kit. And then it is also specific to a short nasal swab collected by an individual and then transported in plain saline. This was one of the things that we were discussing with you two, three months ago was simple supplies of things like swabs. Mm -hmm. There were these rather uncomfortable longer swabs where there were supply shortages. And you just mentioned a shorter swab there too. Talk to me about supplies and even how just little things like the swab and how uncomfortable this test has evolved over the last couple of months. Right. So we've been talking, I think, over the course of the pandemic about all of the different pieces of the medical testing supply chain and various limitations at different points um, over this, the last couple of months. And I think that the nasal pharyngeal swabs, which were the very long swabs, um, used to be in shortage. And I think they still are. And now you're seeing that migrate um, to everything from saliva tubes um, to the shorter swabs. And, you know, I think as different collection methods are validated and approved by the FDA, you'll see that continue to be the case. But the more collection methods are accurate, are authorized, the more we can free up that supply chain. And in the case of our particular test kit, the short nasal swab is an, what's called an anterior nares swab. So it is really just the base of your nostril. And so it is um, not painful, and it is easy to collect a high-quality sample. And the FDA observed multiple studies from different groups that submitted self-sampling um, and showed it to be just as accurate as a clinical setting, and yeah. then, of course, painless. Yeah, because this is the key. If you're doing it yourself, then it has to be something that's not too uncomfortable that perhaps you risk not getting exactly. the, um, the right swab. Julia, I know when we originally spoke as well, you were talking about this test kit being around $135. You've managed to bring that down to just above 
$100. But, you know, a lot of people now can go to their doctor and say, look, I think I'm sick. I, I need a test and they can get it for free. Are you speaking to lawmakers about how you can get funding in order to make this free and available to people, too? That should be part of the battle, surely. So Everly Well made a commitment from the beginning that this test would be offered at no profit. And we have mm. been able to actually bring the price down by reducing costs with our partners, to your point, to $109. Um, we are working with Congress to understand how we may be able to qualify for funding. Congress has um, passed legislation that makes insurance providers mandated to cover the costs of COVID-19 testing, but it does not cover companies like Everlywell that are not a medical provider and not a diagnostics laboratory. Also doesn't cover things like shipping costs, et cetera, which in the case of getting widespread testing, shipping costs are actually a very large part of our cost. Um, and so we are working with them on how we might be able to benefit because we strongly believe that this testing should be available for free and we'll continue to do that, um, such that it's not just at no cost and no profit to Everlywell, but it's actually free for the individual as well. And just to remind us as well, once you've done the swab samples, you've sent them back, time to diagnosis, how long does that take? So the shipping is overnight and it is really essential that the individual ships the sample on the same day that it's collected. Um, yeah. The FDA reviewed transport and stability studies from multiple sources showing that um, saliva, sorry, that showing that the short nasal swab in saline was stable across multiple temperatures and for several days. However, the user has to be diligent about that as well, which is something that we've put in place in our process. And once it is, it is received at the lab, it is 24 to 48 hours guaranteed until you have your result. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's um, what the future should look like all around the world. Julia, I know you've been working 24-7 for several months to get this um, up in place. So thank you so much for joining us again. Good luck. And I know it launches uh, next week. So um, people can go to the website if they're uh, feeling unwell and, uh, and need help in the United States. Julia, great to have you with thank us. Thank you, Julia. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Julia Cheek there, CEO of Everlywell, part of the science. Stay with us. The opening bell's next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley and we have U.S. stock markets up and running today. We're pulling back a little bit here. Some consolidation, let's call it that, after Monday's big rally on hopes of a future COVID-19 vaccine. Now, as economies around the world begin the process of getting back to normal, we're seeing a little bit more oil demand out there, too. That's helped push U.S. crude to above $30 a barrel. A big turnaround, of course. If you remember this time last month, it feels like years, but this was when futures took that historic plunge to trade below $0 a barrel. So producers were being forced to pay those that were buying the oil in order to take it off their hands. Well, a very different story today. In the meantime, the New York Stock Exchange trade floor partially reopening next week. It's been shut for the past eight weeks. The president of the NYSE told CNN's Erin Burnett that things will look a lot different than before. One of the things that drove to our timing to reopen is what we've learned over the past few weeks and about layers of protection. It's also clear that this pandemic is going to be with us for a while. We're not close to having, although closer today, but we're, we're still working on a vaccine. And until we have a vaccine, we, we know we're going to be living with this. So the plans that we have in place are not designed to prevent a single case. They're, pre they're designed to present an, a prevent an outbreak. 
so that we don't have multiple cases in one place. So it's really about layering protections. We have temperature screening for everyone coming in the building. Everyone will be wearing a mask on the trading floor. We've implemented social distancing, created um, restrictions around interactions, whether they be uh, on people's way to work or as well in, in food areas and how, how we'll be approaching each day. All of those things together are part of the solution to limit the likelihood of an outbreak. Everyone's gonna leave the trading floor at the end of the day, so it's, it's impossible to limit a single case. We wanna prevent any single case that comes into the building from spreading to many. Layered protections, the new normal. Now, on this show, we've seen how big data and artificial intelligence can go hand in hand to track coronavirus outbreaks around the world. Well, Blue Dot is a tech company that leverages data, artificial intelligence and travel tracking to generate early warnings about infectious diseases. The man behind the company says working as a medic during the Toronto SARS outbreak in 2003 motivated him to look for solutions. Blue Dot says it spotted coronavirus in Wuhan last December and its algorithms predicted where the virus might go next, both regionally and by tracking flights to destinations around the world. It calculated which cities were most at risk. It's fascinating. Cameron Khan is the founder and CEO of Blue Dot. He's also a professor of medicine and public health at the University of Toronto and a practicing infectious disease physician. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this. As I kind of made clear there, this has been a 17-year journey for you that led to several years ago you founding Blue Dot. Just describe your experience and what made you realize more needed to be done. Mm. Well, thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, the story really goes back 17 years. Uh, you may remember in 2003, we had the SARS outbreak. Uh, I was just beginning my career as a you know practicing infectious disease physician and this virus nobody had ever seen or heard of before uh, showed up in our city, overwhelmed our hospitals, our public health system. Uh, you know, a number of frontline healthcare workers died in that outbreak. What was so clear is that disease has spread really quickly and that if we want to stay a step ahead, we're going to have to move even more quickly. So you recognize that it could be sort of a catastrophe, actually, trying to deal with this, even a microcosm, nothing like what we've seen today. But it led you to say, OK, we can tackle this better. Blue Dot, explain how that works. Yeah, well, well, briefly, you know, as, as you've highlighted, um, the recognition is that the world is changing quickly and we're, we have a lot of the raw ingredients we need to be able to tackle this type of threat. Uh, growing access to data, advanced analytics, digital technologies that can literally spread knowledge around the world faster than any outbreak. That was really the, the motivation and, and inspiration for Blue Dot. Um, we are a digital health company, a diverse group of, uh, you know, veterinarians, physicians, data scientists, engineers, software developers, designers. We're all working collectively to build what we call a digital global early warning system for infectious diseases. Just I want to talk about what you've done as well, but there was something very interesting that you just said there about how diverse your team is. Because when we ask questions about the origin of this virus, when we try and track the path around the world, how it's spreading, your diverse group of people that are working on this perhaps gives you a, an advantage at this moment as well. 
One of the things I've really learned is that this is a very complex problem. You know, one mm. moment you're thinking about Zika virus and you have to think about the biology of a mosquito and temperature and other factors. And then you're dealing with, you know, uh, Ebola, which is completely different. And then, of course, COVID-19 is completely different. You really need a diverse set of not only data, but you need a diverse set of skills and expertise and perspectives uh, to tackle this problem. And that's really what we've been building here at Blue Dot the last six and a half years is that diverse set of perspectives uh, because this is not a, a simple problem to tackle. Absolutely. I want to take us back to Wuhan, but specifically when you were listening to the noises and analyzing the data from Wuhan, and then you looked at the travel patterns around and out of Wuhan, and you said, look, if this is perhaps a bigger problem than we realize, we have to be watching Bangkok. And when we saw a rise in cases in, in Bangkok, very early on in January, you recognized there was a far bigger problem, perhaps, than we were hearing from China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our, by the way, our, our surveillance system, which is part of this early warning system, is looking at news of outbreaks around the world um, in 65 different languages. We're gathering all of this information, uh, using artificial intelligence to make sense of all this vast amounts of data. Um, and that's really where we picked up this early news of the outbreak in, in Wuhan. But we know that these kind of outbreaks don't stay still, that they have the potential to rapidly spread across continents. Um, and that's where we connect all of this data really in just seconds to all of the flight schedules around the world, mm. to the final destinations of, you know, millions to hundreds of millions of passengers moving across the planet. We use that to identify what some of the next cities would be um, that would be at greatest risk of having COVID-19 spread to identify 12 of the top 20. Uh, Bangkok, as you mentioned, was the very top of our list, and it was the first city that was uh, hit with COVID-19 after it spread out of Wuhan. We published that in the peer-reviewed scientific literature because we ultimately wanted to make sure that this type of information was, was available uh, to the scientific community and the public health community uh, back in early January. Yeah, it's just astonishing to me that people like you were recognizing these things so early on and the rest of us were to some degree, still oblivious or not recognizing the potential damage that could be created. I want to compare and contrast New York's experience, which was quite dramatic, versus California. And I know you were working with uh, Governor Newsom and the California authorities. Just explain to me how you were advising them. Hmm. Well, we, you know, have built an early warning system and a platform that's managing outbreaks over their entire life cycle from early detection to assessing how they might spread across continents, but also to be able to manage outbreaks at a local level when they, you know, when we're tackling them in our own backyard. Um, a lot of the work we did uh, with and continue to do with the state of California has been around understanding population movements using data. And I really want to underscore anonymous data on hundreds of millions of mobile devices and the locations of those devices to get a sense of how populations are moving. This is a critical piece of knowledge uh, that we need to, to understand in order to have effective public health interventions, uh, stay at home orders. Are they working? Where are they working? Where are they not? Perhaps where are populations getting fatigued? Um, and these are the kinds of insights that are needed so that the public health sector can utilize its finite human resources in the most efficient and effective and coordinated manner possible. Yeah, we were just showing on the screen there New York and the blue dots and the infectious disease outbreaks, which is, which is critical. Um, 
Cameron, how do we prevent this ever happening again? How do we connect the dots and make sure everyone's speaking, whether it's at the federal level, the nation state level, state level, if you have an enormous country like the United States, but also frontline workers like healthcare workers? How do we prevent what we've seen ever happening again? Well, one of the key pieces that you've highlighted, and I think it's a really important point, is that, first of all, an insight is only useful if it's ultimately translated into an action. And if we're going to tackle these types of threats, we're going to really need to empower the whole of society. Um, you know, generally speaking, this type of information goes to the public health sector first, and then maybe it goes to the healthcare sector and businesses and the public much later. Uh, but we need to be doing this in a more contemporaneous way. Uh, these types of insights have to be reaching all of these various uh, audiences. And I say this as a practicing physician. Uh, sick patients don't go to the public health department. They come to the emergency department. Um, so we need to be empowering these groups and these individuals with insights so that they can protect themselves, but also so they can protect the rest of us. Yeah. The early warning system needs to be far more comprehensive. Cameron Khan, great to have you with us. Fantastic work with the, uh, with the company. Stay in touch, please, because um, we will continue to track the developments with your help, please. Founder and CEO there of Blue Thank Dot. Thank you. Thank you. All right, the head of Disney's streaming service has shocked the entertainment world with news that he's jumping ship to viral video platform TikTok. Kevin Mayer takes over as TikTok CEO after being passed over for the top job at Disney earlier this year. Frank Pelota joins me now. Frank, perhaps I stole your thunder a little bit there. There was some expectation that he could replace Bob Iger. He didn't. So to some degree, no surprise that he's jumped ship to somewhere equally exciting. I think the surprise was that he went to TikTok. And I think there was a kind of surprise that he did like you. But at the same time, like you said, it's not very surprising because Bob Iger basically chose Bob Chapek over Kevin Mayer. And that was kind of a huge shock when that happened earlier this year because Mayer was thought by many people, both in the media world and even on Wall Street, to be the successor to Bob Iger, especially considering that Disney is shifting its focus away from movies and television and trying to become more of a streaming company. And Kevin Mayer founded the DTC, the direct-to-consumer unit, in 2018 and helped build Disney Plus into the new streaming giant it is with 54 million paid subscribers around the world. I mean, they've had great success already, far better, actually, in terms of people signing up for this than they anticipated. Mm -hmm. Is the hard work done? Could we argue that? Or what's going to be on tap now for, for the next person that takes over? Well, what's really interesting here is that this is just another terrible thing to happen in Disney's very good, horrible, bad year. You know, the parks are closed, production's been halted, major movies have been delayed, but the one bright spot was Disney Plus, and that had a lot to do with Kevin Mayer's leadership. And now Disney has to kind of move into an unknown future without the man who helped build that into the new kind of streaming giant it is. I mean, the, the jobs are never done. They, they announced who's going to follow up uh, Kevin Mayer, Rebecca Campbell, who used to be the president of Disneyland Resort in Anaheim, California. She will be taking over for him as he goes over to TikTok. But the streaming wars are just beginning. And Disney wants to be a big part of that. It's going to take on Netflix, hopefully for the next 20 years in their mind. So it's just starting to say the job is done is not really true. But at the same time, the motor is revving pretty well. And we'll see if that had a lot to do with Kevin Mayer or if anyone can really step in and move it forward just because it's the Disney brand. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Never mind the challenge of uh, TikTok. 
and what he does over there. Lots to discuss in the future. Frank Pelota, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, still to come on First Move as the pandemic puts supplies of protective equipment under strain. A company in the UAE is aiming to make the country self-sufficient. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The COVID-19 crisis was a harsh lesson, I think, in the benefits of self-sufficiency when it comes to personal protective equipment. The United Arab Emirates currently imports all life-saving N95 respirator masks from abroad, but that's about to change. A local company that currently manufactures aircraft parts is pivoting to mass production. John Defterios visited the production lines and joins us now from Abu Dhabi. John, great to have you with us. We've seen this all over the world. Companies that need to manufacture less of what they're doing, pivoting to doing things that save lives. And this company, no exception. Uh, no ins- exception indeed. And uh, time was of the essence, uh, Julia, because there was a scramble to get the PPE equipment uh, under pressure around the world. So this went to the very top here in Abu Dhabi. The CEO of Bubadla, the investment uh, sovereign fund, uh, talking to the CEO of Honeywell. And get this, from handshake to production in less than 30 days. That was the mandate, and they're delivering on it. And after that Im- initial rush that we saw in the market, Julia, we saw some countries putting uh, tariffs and actually export bans on some of the materials and machinery. So this is much trickier than one would think. So as you suggested, an aircraft parts manufacturer that handles products for Airbus and Boeing, given the mandate, it ran with it and now is delivering within the next week at uh, full capacity. Let's take a listen. Everyone is saying that we are at war. In order to win that war against coronavirus, you need to ensure that the supplies are available in a timely fashion. A lot of the countries have introduced restrictions when it comes to the materials, when it comes to the machine, even when it comes to to, to the actual finished good masks. This is what enables the region to be self-independent. So going from a vulnerable importer to a regional exporter, Julia, after covering the the domestic needs here, uh, and they see the regional markets, the bigger ones to help support in this effort would be Egypt and Saudi Arabia, two obvious ones because of a dual population there, a collective population of 130 million consumers. And then you raise the question, is there demand? Uh, The folks at Mubadalat are suggesting over the next five years, they should have order books of a billion masks in a post-COVID-19 world for the healthcare sector, construction, very important, food and beverage, and also trying to live with this virus and the many iterations going forward as well. Yeah, too much uncertainty at this stage. You just need to be prepared. Inventories matter. John Defterius in Abu Dhabi there. Thank you so much for that. All right, coming up on First Move, how some of our four-legged friends are now being trained to combat coronavirus. That's very cute. All the details next. We like paw patrols on this show, and we all know dogs could be trained to give blind people back their mobility. They can help police by sniffing out drugs and even detect if someone has cancer. Well, now they're being trained in the hope that they can perhaps spot COVID-19. Max Foster has the story. This dog is being trained to detect prostate cancer. She's presented with urine samples and rewarded when she identifies the correct one. Good girl. What a good girl. 
This dog is able to identify the odor of malaria sufferers. Their next mission here is to train dogs to sniff out people infected with COVID-19. The way we're going to do that is by collecting using face masks, and we're asking people to wear these face masks for a few hours, and then we carefully collect those. And the other thing we're going to do is get people to wear nylon socks. That sounds a bit strange, but we know from our previous experience. That this is a really good way of collecting odors from people, and it's such an easy way to do it. If the training is successful, one of their first deployments is likely to be airports, where dogs are already used to sniff out drugs and other contraband. If they help reopen the travel industry, that could be the boost to international trade that governments everywhere have been looking for. Max Foster, CNN, outside London. You're very clever. All right, we're just about wrapping up the show. Let me give you a quick look at where stock markets here are trading. We're slipping into red, as you can see, taking back some of yesterday's bumper gains. We're counting down to testimony, of course, to on Capitol Hill for Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Fed Chief Jay Powell pouring over the money that's been provided. No doubt questioning on what more should be done to help support the U.S. economy. That's it for the show. That's up next. And we'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.